this episode, driving performance. Um, it's been a great 11 episodes, yes. Yeah, I've enjoyed it in the van. Yeah, and um, so I've graduated from the armchair to the couch, um, and I'm joined by my co-founder, Max Flannery, and um, we're being interviewed by our lovely team member, Emmy O'Leary. So, Emmy, take it over. Well, I am super excited to uh, interview you guys. I know you've been in the uh, truck interviewing a lot of different founders, so excited <laughs> to flip it on to you. Um, so let's start with your early, early life growing up. Um, tell us about your entrepreneurial pursuits um, in college and high school, and stuff like that. Yeah, happy to kick us off, and I'll, I'll just start by by echoing what what Tom and Emmy have said. It's been an awesome uh, activity and project for the whole Agile team. Kudos to Tom for eleven great interviews. Um, I haven't. We're still on recording day, so I haven't listened to them yet. But I am sure that they are all <laughs> going to turn out very successful and uh, gonna gonna break the internet. Um, but yeah, excited to, to dig into our story, um, share not only with some of our team members and, and clients who haven't heard of it, but um, family and friends as well. Um, so my name is Max Flannery, co-founder and CEO of Agile Media Group, uh, originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, grew up in a, a family of a very entrepreneurial um, people. My mom uh, started a, an organization called Cancer Free Kids after my younger sister had cancer at the age of six months old. She is now a healthy, beautiful 27-year-old, but through that process, my parents realized that childhood cancer research is greatly underfunded, only getting 4% of the dollars that um, the nationwide dollars with, with adult cancer research getting 96%. So I was three and a half years old when I saw my mom quit her job and devote the rest of her life to changing um, starting this organization and, and being this change in the world that, that she thought should happen. And I think that just at a very young age that, that instilled this um, idea in me that, you know, if you see an opportunity in the world, uh, that, that you should jump on it and, and pursue it. So um, as I grew up, I, I went to St. Xavier High School and then Miami University in Ohio. And throughout all those stages in life was always just trying to tinker with different business ideas, whether it was a grass cutting business in the neighborhood or um, buying and selling sports tickets and concert tickets in, in college. Um, and then eventually post-grad, I went to Chicago uh, to do management consulting for Deloitte. And at that stage, was started to try and think bigger. And so me and a lot of my friends were um, identifying any little problem that we would have in our daily lives, think about what business we could start to, to try and solve that. So went through quite a, quite a few, um, was a, a fun, really good learning experience. I think just spitballing those ideas, putting them down on paper, learning uh, the business implications of them and, and trying to figure out you know, what everyone has all of these different interesting ideas, trying to figure out which ones are actually viable businesses is a is a great activity for uh, any young business person to, to go through. So uh, eventually landed on on one that became Agile Media Group. Um, and we'll go into that uh, here in yeah. a little bit. Cool. Tom Shea, you're probably sick of hearing my voice at this point, <laughs> but I'm Max's co-founder and the chief revenue officer. So my background, I grew up on uh, Long Island, New York, um, son of a New York City fireman and a New York City school teacher. I have three older sisters and, um, you know, much like Max had a lot of those really great influences when I was very young. Um, my dad, while he was a firefighter, opened Mineola Signs and Awnings, which is, you know, physical um, building signs and awnings for retail institutions. And my oldest sister, Katie, um, you know, was in 2008 building a company out of her dorm, which, which she went on to, to go sell. And so having that influence, um, I started a company in high school, just like, you know, your classic t-shirt company, but it gave me all this freedom, I think gave me that early exposure, but it goes back even further from that, further than that. My dad used to have us at long red lights with a sign that says raising money for Disney World and selling out, selling water bottles. Uh, we were not raising money for Disney World. <laughs> we were just raising money for cash. Um, but you know that, that like entrepreneurship, that scrappiness, like it it runs in the family, I think. And I've largely been, I think, molded in their image when you think about nature versus nurture. But 
Um, took I all remember, of that. I remember, I'm a big sports fan, and at a young age, my I would always ask my dad to take me to the game, and he said, I'm not paying secondary ticket prices. You stand with a sign that says, I need two tickets, and if you get them for, for face value, I'll take you. There so you I'm go. Three years old, doing the same thing your dad. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, went to Boston College, studied finance, computer science, Chinese. Um, really was, I don't think I was ever too passionate about any of those disciplines, but um, I always, my oldest sister gave me this advice, like find the hardest things, learn them, show that you can learn those things well, because people that you're, people that are hiring um, postgrads out of undergraduate uh, really just care that you can learn something. No one expects you to get on the job and know everything. And so being able to show prospective employers that I could learn something complicated quick and do it well, I think would have been more attractive than, you know, uh, other pursuits. So I did all of that, uh, ended up at a company called McMaster Car Supply Company in Los Angeles. Um, I tried to get really far from New York in the outdoor advertising business, which my dad was in. Uh, haha, I'm back here in New York with uh, in the same business. Um, but was in Los Angeles, was there for a couple years, eventually moved to the company's headquarters in Chicago uh, with a move into software engineering, which so I, I did machine learning in search software for a couple of years. Simultaneous to that, I was in, enrolling at University of Chicago Booth School of Business nights and weekends. And um, with that move to Chicago, I, I didn't know like anyone. So I texted a lot of my Boston College friends saying, hey, has anyone got like some friends, uh, secondary connections in Chicago? And that's sort of the beginning of the, the story of how Tom and Max met. Yeah, so on that note, how exactly did you meet once you were in Chicago? And how long did you know each other before creating Agile? One day? Yeah, probably <laughs> a matter of hours. <laughs> I think the story was, I got a text from my friend, friend of a friend of a friend saying, hey, Tom just moved to Chicago. Um, and we were having a party that night, we invited him. And I think two days before I started putting pen to paper on uh, what at the time was called adjacent advertising. Uh, essentially, the business idea then, I had just seen a semi-truck or a, a delivery truck with a digital screen on the back of it that was just flashing ads. It was Applebee's, Amazon, Pepsi, Applebee's, Amazon, Pepsi. I thought that was pretty interesting. I've never seen a digital ad on the back of a delivery vehicle, but I thought that that model could be much smarter if we could get the technology to make those ads only display when it's nearby a restaurant or a point of business that um, that you can actually be in the actually send them business at at that time. I looked up the closest Applebee's. It was an hour and a half away. I thought there was a better way. So the bottle then was digital weatherproof vandalproof screens on the back of trucks that were time and location aware. So if it's on the highway going from Chicago to LA, it's going through Indiana, approaching exit five, it might say next exit McDonald's at lunchtime. Once it passes exit five, it would advertise for next exit Holiday Inn at, on, on the next exit at nighttime or whatever it might be. Um, so when I first met Tom, he had the computer science background. And so I think the first time that we met, we pretty quickly got uh, got into talk and shop. And uh, you said that was something that, that you could program. And I think we were off I the I couldn't, races. by the way, I had no idea what I was doing. But yeah, we just soldered like a Raspberry Pi to a GPS chip to a screen. And the MVP looked a lot like Max literally in the back of a truck holding it up with chicken wire while yeah. we filmed content. So it looked like it was real and it was yeah. all fake. Um, and we were just like hitting slides instead yep. of it actually Outpoint. working. Yeah. But yeah, and, and so I think we had the good fortune of meeting very early. I think we were co-founders before we were friends. And, yep. you know, it's crazy, like, what's six years later that we, we haven't murdered each other yep. quite yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and so I, I, that sort of brings us to, I guess, the pivot a little bit. Yeah, but to kind of go back on that, I think it's interesting because some of the guests that you interviewed, their co-founders are their family or their single founders. Um, right. But a lot of people don't start just going into being co-founders right away. I feel like there's some sort of like friendship or something. What is uh, What tips would you give for people that want to find a co-founder? Um, what do you look for? What yeah. are some red flags? I don't, I don't think there's any like one-size-fits-all approach. It's probably like a very case-by-case -case scenario, but I think for us, it, it probably helped that we were co-founders first because there was no like um, 
chumminess or like, I think something I see sometimes when people try to start business with friends and don't get me wrong, plenty have been successful is um, priority shift. Like some people are putting in more effort than others. And it always felt sort of pretty even like from, from the very beginning. And, and don't get me wrong, we're like very different people. Um, and I, I'd say that's probably one of our strengths as founders. But um, I, think, I think it was better that we weren't, and obviously now we're incredible friends. Like Max and I spend a lot of time together and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it was better that we were co-founders. Yeah, I would first. agree. I mean, I think that starting with co-founders, we were able to just call each other out and be blunt and not feel like you're jeopardizing any any like outside of business relationship. I think when I look back on it, it is just, I mean, it was fortunate how it worked out, but I think that <clears throat> we have opposite strengths and weaknesses. I think that um, the, the one that comes to mind is you're more of the like more emotional and have more emotional intelligence. I'm kind of like stoic, like <clears throat> yes or no. Um, and that has times and places for both definitely. <laughs> um, and then the other is, as we've talked about is you're much more like <clears throat> operational focus, head down, let's plow through this next objective. Um, when I'm kind of always looking at, okay, what are the, what are the implications five steps down the road? Where does the company need to be in a couple years? Um, where I feel like you're more focused on, you know, how are we going to hit our goals this month, this quarter, et cetera. So um, I think the best advice that I could give is identify what your weaknesses are, what you don't like doing, um, and, and find someone that uh, that can bring that strength to, to like the team. Like <laughs> So. You mean to tell me that I can integrate my shop with you in less than a minute? You store all my inventory across your 50 plus fulfillment centers in the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia, and then fulfill all of my orders globally with over a 99% order accuracy rate? That's right. We do that for over 7,000 brands today. And you can do that for all my D2C, B2B, and Amazon orders? Yep. And when my next TikTok video goes viral or during the holiday rush? You can grow with me forever? Yes, again. Dang, that's the ship, Bob. Check out ShipBob at ShipBob.com to unlock your fulfillment provider that acts as your personal chief supply chain officer. Well, I know Max is not a hugger, but Tom yeah. definitely is. <laughs> I know that was, that was yeah, uncomfortable That's moment. pretty on brand. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I know this from also just the different emails that we've had in the past where it's like at adjacent technology. I yeah. know that agile was originally not agile. Right. It was adjacent technology. So talk to me about that and, you know, why aren't we building that business today? Yeah, I, um, you want me to take that one? Sure. Yeah, so, um, you know, we had a different business model. It was these over-the-road 53-foot trucks with a tech-enabled digital screen and the ads being served were time, location, and contextually aware. And so we had the really good fortune of getting to the University of Chicago's New Venture Challenge, mm -hmm. which is really like their, the university equivalent for them of like Y Combinator, Techstars, where these, these businesses grow out of. And it's home to a lot of really cool places like Foxtrot, Simple Mills, Venmo, um, that have come out of that circuit. And so we had a lot of really great exposure early on. Um, we went through that system together, and it, it was quite a learning experience, really cool, talking like the CEO of Chipotle and all these people who were taking us, for the first time in our lives, probably like seriously, and there was a lot of pinch me moments that I remember during that experience, but we got to sort of that final round of the New Venture Challenge, which culminates with a pitch day, and you know, we're prepared, we had moved the business forward quite meaningfully, I'd say, I, to, to my grave, I will say, we made the most progress during, um, that quarter. But I think when we got to the finals, um, as excited as we were, we sort of got some tough lessons and some tough love on like what it actually takes to build a business. And so, you know, Max, you were at Deloitte, I was with MasterCard. Not, none of us had any marketing, any sales, any trucking experience. And so while we <laughs> thought we had a good idea, um, we sort of got a nice uh, slap in the face with reality by mm -hmm. the judges' feedback. And I remember being furious about the feedback and all pissed and you know, we added them to our shared iPhone notes of people we don't like. <laughs> um, but very quickly realized they were absolutely right. And the feedback they gave us is, there's, that business is really tip, uh, difficult to build for two reasons. One, you have these beautiful weatherproof, vandal-proof screens, but to build a business, you're gonna need a lot of those screens. And when those screens have a significant investment or CapEx, you don't need a million dollars to test the business to see if there's a real business there. You need yeah. like tens and twenties of millions of dollars 
just to figure out if the, the business has legs. Yeah. The second piece of feedback was it's a really difficult business to scale. And this was something that was a blind spot for us from just not understanding how media dollars and marketing uh, mm -hmm. budgets worked. So if you were to take like a, a brand, a franchise brand like McDonald's, they allocate budget at the national, regional, and local level. Uh, <laughs> and so all their franchisees contribute money and then uh, allocate it to those different uh, segments. And so um, when we were thinking about this beautiful idea of like, oh, we got this truck that goes like, like Max said from Chicago to LA, it's gonna be a lot of McDonald's on day one. We'll get that contract. We'll turn on the lights, and they'll get a ton of value from it. Well, it turns out, um, until you have nationwide presence, so we need trucks literally all over the United States. Yeah. You can't compete for a national budget. Regional budget is only allocated to a specific region. So you'll have a co-op group of franchises in like the Chicago land area and the New York area, things like that. So we couldn't compete for regional budget either because it wouldn't uh, help all of them. And so we were stuck with local budget, and local budget meant an incredible amount of blocking and tackling to stitch together all these individual franchise owners across the country. And so essentially there were clear glaring fundamental issues with our business. Yeah. The feedback we got from those judges was, listen, this is a really expensive business to test. If you're serious about this, like how about you go out and prove that there's even a market for advertising on trucks, period. Whatever that even looks like, and prove to us that people will buy this media and then come talk to us and, and we can talk about uh, you guys raising money. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But something that I'm curious about is getting that feedback after you've put like years and time into this project, not project, your business. Um, how do you take that? How do you not let that like totally discourage you and be like, well, these people who are super powerful said, this is a terrible idea. I'm going to just give up and call it quits. Yeah. It, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I remember it was devastating at the time I was at a um, out-of-home advertising conference at the time, and I remember we got the email saying, like, we didn't move on or we didn't win or whatever, and I just remember it was heartbroken that night, and I'm sure for the next couple months after, as we're kind of, like, just talking about where do we go from here, um, I think a, a, a few big lessons that came out of that. One is um, a lot of people talk about, like, listening to listening to critique or criticism when you're starting a business. And there definitely needs to be a decent amount of, you know, at the very beginning, many people told us, don't even try this, this isn't gonna work. And they still to this day. And, it, and you have to have the ability to not listen to that. But this wasn't that. This was a group of very sophisticated investors all kind of agreeing that these are the pain points that you're gonna run into. And, and how about you think about yeah. how to overcome those pain points? So I think once we kind of put our ego aside or, or got over our feelings being hurt, we then realized, okay, like let's just analyze what they're saying at the core of these, these are the two issues. And then identify, is there a way to build this business that, um, that eliminates those as, as large hurdles? Um, and, and thankfully, once we kind of you know, put our emotions aside, uh, we identified what is now um, Agile Media Group. I think another thing that it taught me and, and one thing that I wish I learned at a, at a younger age is that when you're trying to think of a business to start, a good idea or just something that should exist doesn't mean that it's a viable business model, doesn't mean that it's going to make money. And I never really understood that. I just thought like, like there should be movie screens on the back of trucks. Like, you know, just like weird ideas that I was, and then you go into it and it's like, okay, yeah, this is just, it's not gonna be a viable business. So um, I think that that was a, a good lesson to, to learn at a young age. And, and I think that as I, you know, approach new, new business ventures now, um, the, the ROI, the payback period, the amount of investment, all of that is, is much more top of mind. Uh, than it was a, a few years back. You clearly built a successful business today. I mean, I think you can just see from the podcast and the types of guests coming on and um, we're in New York and I see our ads all the time in the <laughs> wild. So talk to us about how Agile got to where it is today. We talked a lot about Chicago, but how did you make that transition to New York? Yeah, um, yeah. so I think it starts with the pivot, um, like the functional pivot of the business. Um, hearing that feedback, like you said, you know, we were pretty close to just hanging up those hats and, you know, go to BCG or, you know, find some corporate job that was safe because it had been like a two and a half year journey at that point. But, um, you know, I think that what was really interesting is 
Instead of going into it knowing the problem we were trying to solve, we went into it trying to just start a business. And while that's like problematic for a lot of reasons, I think the silver lining is we really wanted to start a business. And we really just stayed and like, in, in, you know, surrounded ourselves in that industry and dug deep and learned a lot about it. Oh, and we just said, in my opinion, like stayed in the ring long enough to identify a problem to solve. And that was really this idea of like, people didn't really care about the high tech screen. They cared about attribution and like finding something that you could actually measure the return on investment on, especially with like everything as digital marketing's done to, to media. And so we took our original business idea, these static screens on 53 foot trucks that traverse the, the entire country and consolidated it down to last mile delivery trucks. So 26 foot to 18 foot box trucks that, um, operate the last mile. So they stay within these regional geographies, like a truck will stay in New York, a truck will stay in Los Angeles, things like that. And at the same time, we leaned really hard into attribution or this, this idea of, can you measure physical world media in the way that you can uh, like digital? And so um, identifying those as, as what needed to be solved, we simplified the product, leaned in on the technology, and I'm happy to talk about the technology later. And I think that's when we really started to find product market fit. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we can kind of jump into like the, the tactical process of launching that. Um, we so that the new venture challenge ended in summer of, of 2019, took us a few months to, you know, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and, um, and transition the business identify what phase two of, of this venture was going to be. Um, and then we planned, uh, I think we honed, honed the, the concept, had some advertisers and were ready to launch it on April of 2020. <laughs> um, so Outdoor we're, advertising, we're, yeah. global pandemic. So we were pretty excited to, uh, to, to try again. And then obviously mid-March, especially in New York City, uh, pretty quickly no one was on the sidewalk to see those advertisements. So. Um, another, what I felt like was a gut punch, um, just nine months after kind of the first feedback with, with adjacent. Um, but looking back, I think that really just gave us nine months to, I think our, our mindset at the time after hearing the business you've worked two and a half years on, isn't going to work, try something else was we are now impatient. We feel like we just, we've now spent three years on something and still have practically nothing to show for it. So I think we were trying to rush to market and just put something up and just try and like validate to ourselves that the time that we've spent on this has been worthwhile, et cetera. Um, and I think that, you know, not to try and find a silver lining in that mm -hmm. second gut punch of the pandemic, it did give us nine more months to hone in all the specifics. We, we figured out the in-depth details of what's needed on, in attribution, honed our marketing skill or marketing materials, um, really established a wide uh, variety of, of trucking partners in, in the most populated dense areas of each market. Um, so I think that come 2021, when we actually launched, we were much better positioned um, without spending a dime um, than we would have been if we kind of just rushed out there in, in April of 2020. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering who your first partner was that you launched with. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we're probably, if I'm thinking of a calendar, we're probably like fall of 2020 here, right? Mm -hmm. And is when we first and first started doing campaigns. So um, our first couple of clients, uh, the, the first one was Gia, mm -hmm. Topicals, and I think Finn were like our, our first Slice. three in Slice, yeah. And um, really at this point, we were just like giving away the product for yeah. pennies on the dollar. Essentially, our, our hope was, you know, we don't have any data. We have, we've now figured out some of the, like, the, the roots or like the framework of how we would collect this data, but we had no evidence. And so um, we raised the family and friends round around that time. A um, bunch of like very small checks from family and friends, we activated like literally everyone. I was, I was emailing like high school teachers at that point, if, if I recall. And we put together, I think about $300,000 with the average check size being 5,000. And yeah, so we had those first partners come on, um, severely discounted, definitely below cost. And because we could measure it, we could see the results. And, and I mean, thank God the results <laughs> told the right story and it was pretty consistent. And 
they also kept coming back. And I think something that's really interesting is as we learned more and as we had more data, it starts to snowball, right? So we're getting new clients because we have these pre-existing um, relationships and all these case studies. We're also you know, starting to stress test the price in the upper bound of like how much we can actually charge for this product um, to validate those assumptions. Like, could we actually sell this at a, at a, a rate that would be profitable yeah. in a steady state? And um, I think something we, we learned pretty quickly is, you know, we kept going back to those clients and we were like, hey, we've increased the price. You're on your like third campaign. Like, you can afford the billboard now. You just raised $10 million. We thought you were buying us because you were, you were also a scrappy company and you yeah. were a startup and you were trying to like find a nice arbitrage opportunity. And I think something that really guided our future strategy is when we asked them, why are you still here? We definitely thought it was data and I do think that was part of it. We definitely thought it was price and again, I think that was part of it. But I think the biggest unlock that we got from that experience from our early clients is the ones that retained and were really performing, their response was, I like your I like your product because no one knows it's an advertisement. Yeah. And so this gets into this concept of the virtual fleet. And the virtual fleet, really, we like took business from all sorts of categories in the beginning: B two B, HR, software, consumer. And when we heard that feedback, and we looked at also at like the case study data. Yeah. It was clear there was something there of this. Oh, no one knows it's an ad. And so we ran a long form behavioral psychology study on this. And what we learned was. People who see a branded truckside advertisement are under the impression that it is carrying the goods that are being advertised for. And so what we unlocked with that is one, it would inform where we would specialize, but two, like we were giving brands an opportunity to really punch above their weight, give us this a validating IRL presence where people would see that truck and go, damn, like they have their own supply chain. Like I guess that company's doing really well. I guess that truck is delivering that product to all of my neighbors. If all my neighbors are consuming that product, then I guess like m maybe I'm willing to give it a shot, yeah. right? We are we, we we're pretty impressionable as humans as much as like we like to think we're not, and so that sort of catapulted and really informed I think what would become the future of where we would specialize in consumer, in adult beverage, in owned retail and franchises, and um, you know sort of skipped a few chapters, but like is is really core to our strategy today. Yeah, and I I mean. Thank God that that first customer vocalized that because we never, that never crossed our minds in the early days. I remember being on that call and saying, if I buy a billboard, everyone knows I paid for an ad, but if I wrap 20 trucks, people think that my product's being delivered everywhere and it's flying off of shelves. And then once we doubled down on that, I mean, pretty quickly had uh, Pepsi promoting their new products nationwide using our format, making it look like this new product is just flooding the market, being delivered everywhere. Yeah. Um, and and we have just kind of doubled down on that strategy ever since and um, have seen a lot of success with it. Yeah, I think that's so true because we've been on pitches and even when you're talking to other founders, they're like, oh, I saw the flyby Jing trucks. I assumed like those yeah. are like, she must be killing it. So <laughs> yeah, it's right. not just like regular, you know, like even founders think that well, as well. Well, shout out to Ship Bob, our sponsor. Yes. One, of our, one of our first, one of the greatest tweets was one of their investors flew into New York for an investor meeting with Ship Bob and saw the Ship Bob agile truck passing by and he was like excited for the future of ship bob yeah they, so the, they thought they were moving into yeah, freight yeah. they thought that like yeah. their competitors started getting scared yeah. being like holy shit ship bob is now moving into yeah. freight like what is our company doing to prepare for this and you know these are like tens of billion dollar value yeah. companies and we're sort of like influencing yeah, yeah. the situation so it's it, a psychology it, it's a really sure. interesting you know you're right the behavioral psychology element of of what we do, I think is really powerful. Yeah. Over 7,000 customers like Pet Lab, Chamberlain Coffee, Hero Cosmetics, Spike Ball, Dossier, TB12, Pit Viper, 100 Thieves. Tens of millions of packages shipped every year. 50 plus fulfillment centers across the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia. An app store with 50 plus integrations like Shopify, Amazon, NetSuite, and many more. Managed inventory distribution, D2C and B2B fulfillment capabilities. 99.96% of order shipping on time. 99.95% order accuracy rate. Yep, we're talking about ShipBob again. We know picking a fulfillment partner or 3PL is not easy. And equally importantly, we know you never want to have to move or pick another one. That's why we partnered with ShipBob. From zero to 100 million in sales, ShipBob has you covered. 
Right now, it seems like it's just you. Well, at this point in time, it seems like it's just you two building the business. And then when do you, re like, were you in a financial position to hire people? And also, can we talk about, were you working on the business full-time? Because you guys also had, like, jobs. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll answer the first part. I think we, it was always, like, a nights and weekends thing. I think that's why it took two and a half years. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, sort of just like a hot take on this, I think entrepreneurial, entre being an entrepreneur gets a bad rap and that people think it's so risky. And, yeah. and I, I really don't think it's that binary. I think both Max and I have like really low uh, list risk tolerance. Like I'm, I'm like fairly conservative in how I carry myself business wise. And like, I'm so grateful we did, right? Cause if we quit our, if we were like, this is a good idea, hell yeah, let's quit our jobs. Yeah. Two and a half years and then falling flat in our face it's not until we got through all those hard lessons and in a de-risked manner, we were still making income that we were able to sort of understand what the right operating model would be. And, and you can really imagine a situation where you get to year two, you're burnt out, you're out of money, you're tired, and you, you hang it up right there. And, yeah. and if that's what you do, you jump all in right away without sort of validating the operating model. I think um, you don't really put yourself in a, a position for success. So I, I really like the idea of de-risk as much as you can while you're in a comfortable position and only we only quit our jobs when we were suffocating the growth of the business the business could literally not move forward unless we we quit our jobs but max you want to talk about um sort of just like the growth yeah. in the, hiring the team and stuff yeah totally agree with everything that you just said i think that now at this time we're in early 2021 tom described how we started with that um cohort of kind of middle tier cpg companies a lot of them were, were referred to us through your sister, Katie Shea, who's, Shout a, out Katie who's Shea. a venture capitalist. So it was in, in introducing us to portfolio companies when we were essentially giving it away. Yeah. Then we started increasing price. They referred us to others. And, and pretty quickly, by I'd say the summer of 2021, we had a pretty sizable customer portfolio. Um, and at that time, Tom, you had been full-time on the business for five or so months at that time. And... Um, I quit my job summer of 21 to join you. And then we also identified that we needed to hire to scale out a sales organization um, in order to, because even though we were both full time, we were still suffocating the business. So yeah. um, we went to market with the intent of raising $1 million um, and were introduced to uh, a, a world-class um, all-star team at, at Brand Foundry Ventures. Um, CPG investors uh, with an awesome track record. And I think they were uh, attracted to us because they're primarily CPG investors that um, many of their portfolio companies were already advertising with us or there were similar companies that they invested in as uh, some of our advertisers. So their thought was, I love this form of advertising and there's a lot of synergies with other investments that we've made. Um, so was pretty interesting to uh, go through that process. We ended up raising a $5 million seed round uh, instead of one, which was a pretty big change. Also, uh, shout out to them for yep. essentially went into that trying to raise a million and they were like, this is gonna take a lot more than yeah. you think it is. And I don't think we'd really started to take off until we burned more than, a, definitely more than a million. Yeah. And, and then it really started to turn the corner. So, you know, I think the, the importance and the plug for just people who definitely knew more than we did. And I think our, yeah. fortunately our take, our, our position on this has always been, we know what we don't know. And, exactly. and we find people and surround ourselves with people that do know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of Amy Liu from Tower 28 when her friend was like, no, you need double. Yeah, um, yeah. right, right, right. But this right. is a couple million more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how have things, after you raised that round, how did things start to change? I think that in my mind, especially once we raised the larger amount of money, um, that changed the growth trajectory of the plan of the business from we're going to hire one salesperson, we're gonna pretty much stay in our roles and then just have one other person you know, under us who's, who's assisting in selling and kind of just continue this um, slow gradual growth to, okay, let's blow this out of the water, big capital infusion, um, and let's shoot for the stars. So I think that while one of our biggest strengths is knowing what we don't know and trying to find people that, um, that, that 
do know that or, or can handle that. That is their strength. Um, that is what we tried to do at that time uh, with the sales organization and invested heavily um, to try and try and build out a sales org to take over all of the selling from Tom and I. Um, and, and unfortunately, about halfway through 2022, um, that structure just wasn't working. And it was very clear that the founders needed to step back in, take back the reins of, of sales um, as it is, you know, literally the, the fireplace of, of a, or the engine of a, of a startup like this. It, it was definitely really interesting. It, it, it changed the trajectory of the business. The expectations were much higher. It wasn't something that we could, you know, approach from sort of a bootstrap lens and grow, grow in like this, you know, linear, sustainable fashion at that point. And for good reason, like you can build a bit, an incredible business without raising venture capital. But, you know, having real estate as a core part of our strategy, um, it did necessitate having to raise capital. So things started moving a lot more quicker. Like, like Max said, um, we tried to hire a sales team. We hired what we thought were um, in incredible individuals to lead it because we knew nothing about yeah. starting, building. Like we didn't have a formal sales background, anything like that. And so, like Max said, about six months into 2022, I think we had five or six uh, sales employees with pretty much no non-founder sales revenue to show for it. And so at that point, we were you know, starting to get a little uncomfortable at least it started with just wanting to nose in like what's going on here. We thought we could like delegate this, um, which was absolutely a mistake. And so that culminated with, um, we hired uh, our head of operations now, Carlos Reyes, from my last career at McMaster Car. Uh, there's a funny story around that where I got hired as a 10 person analyst class with Carlos in Los Angeles. And I remember being like, he was someone I was afraid of almost, mm -hmm. where I was like, we will meet at the top of this company and we will have to jockey for the same position and like, we're gonna have to hate each other. And, and fortunately, that's not how that story ends. I went to Chicago, he stayed in LA, he went to UCLA, I went to Booth, and um, we were able to join forces. Uh, he was at a FinTech startup um, that was, it's just a really challenging business that they were trying to build over there. And we had just raised money listen, there's an opportunity to get in on the ground floor. He's like, you guys are exactly where I hoped my, this current venture I'm involved in uh, would be. And so he joined our team uh, on the operation side. And McMaster, honestly, in, turns out incredible ops people. There's a few of them on our team now. And, you know, it was very fortuitous and uh, probably lucky um, because I was the chief operating officer at that point. So I was doing all of the execution work in addition to trying to sell on the side. And what Carlos enabled us to do is really just have that be an afterthought, give us the space and flexibility to say, listen guys, I understand how this business works. I got it, I got it from here. Like go up, do what you need to do on the sales side to, to fix the business. And so at that point, um, Carlos took over the reins at, on the ops side and I became uh, the chief revenue officer. And so I was, I was always obviously pretty intimately involved in the sales process, but that was my first time really, I don't know, just leaning into it and to be honest, I love it so much more yeah. <laughs> uh, than the op side, and so it's been a it's been a pretty cool evolution. It's it's tricky, right? No one you don't know you're good at sales, um, mm -hmm. but I say it a lot at work. You know, we we don't sell media, we sell trust. We sell trust first, media second, and so it's really been you know a dream come true of mine to be able to work with so many founders and emerging brands and be able to deliver a product and service that, that actually genuinely adds value. And, you know, we're no longer in theoretical performance in the context of out of home, it's provable. And so being able to um, add value like that has been really rewarding. Yeah, I think that, that thankfully it, it took us, what, a, a year or more to, to find this right structure. But um, I think that, that we're pretty happy with the structure of the company now with Tom leading sales for now, Carlos leading operations, um, and gives me the opportunity to, I'm still involved in, in all of those aspects, but also someone needs to be looking at what's next. What are external partnerships? What are, um, you know, staying in touch with current investors, future investors, board meetings, you know, all of this, uh, all of the stuff that, that you don't see as much in the day-to-day -day operations. Um, so I have enjoyed being able to, to focus on that more. I think that the biggest lesson learned there is um, that we were able to hand over the operations to 
while Carlos is an all-star, to someone who is, an, who is a non-founder because that side of the company was in a steady state. And we tried to do that with the sales organization before the model was proven. And I think that, the, I guess, advice to, to other founders is <clears throat> you can't really take your hands out of the details of one area of a business until um, you're pretty confident that it's you know, moving steadily and, and you've got a pretty solid model uh, to go forward. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's cool that we've grown as well with the brands that we work with. So now we're seeing them in like Whole Foods, Sephora, and they have like whole like counters dedicated to them. So that's super exciting. And Out of Home is growing too. So I'm curious, what is the biggest lesson you've learned um, in building the business? Nice, you want to take that? Sure, I kind of just, just hit on one of, of just more operationally um, making sure that you're not handing over uh, a, a section, a key section of the business to um, <clears throat> a new employee too early. But uh, along those same lines, I think that the goal of mine now is just to try and identify and retain world-class people. And I, it, it sounds a little tacky. I remember uh, hearing startup founders say it um, you know, years ago when we were first starting, but just growing, meeting the awesome employees that we have, building close relationships with them. It is incredible um, what adding additional awesome people can do to um, a business. And um, there's not a doubt in, in either of our minds that, that we wouldn't be here uh, without them. So I, I think that's really the name of the game is how do you find them? And then once you find them, you got to keep them around. Yeah, and I, I think um, if I learned anything about this experience, it I, I'd probably chalk it all up to community. Um, I think when we think of why our business has worked, uh, essentially all, like this is our first foray into doing anything like marketing and content focused. It's really all been word of mouth. And I think there's just a lot embedded in that. I think if I had to summarize it in, in one phrase, it's like good things happen to people that put themselves out there. People yeah. that are, are willing to be vulnerable and honest about what they're trying to find. And, you know, we we both come from corporate America. It's something that's just been so rewarding is the community of founders that have sprung up around us to support us, um, taking our calls, all these all these incredible things. And and so this ecosystem is the best. And you know don't don't be afraid to to ask for help. You know if anyone is anyone who is successful and like has their head screwed on right, they have had help getting there. And if they are if they are unwilling to recognize that and not pay it forward or reciprocate. They're honestly just shitty people. Like, like that's my perspective on it. So, fortunately, we've been the benefactors of that to date so far, and we've been pretty intentional about trying to find ways to to pay that forward. Yeah, I see that all the time. Like, you're always crafting emails to defer, like doing intros between different founders and investors. There's um, probably like three intros that go with each sales call follow-up. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's like. We're in this cool position as a B2B company where we know a lot about the ecosystem and, and you know, we we have to talk to all these brands to run our business. So it's it's been cool to just learn all these things and learn them on an accelerated timeline um, just by doing a little bit more listening than we do talking. Yeah, definitely. And I think that Agile's grown, obviously, since the beginning so much. So I'm really curious, what's on the agenda next? Like, what do what's coming? What do we got cooking up? We got this podcast. Yeah. I think the podcast was a cool sort of story in that um, someone told us, and I think I said this in one of the earlier episodes, you either need to build a content engine or you need to make one. I'm sorry, you need to build one or you need to, to buy one. Yeah. And so our play here was we wanted to start a podcast like I said, there's so many incredible people in this industry. We want to put on, you know, put on a platform, get their stories out. But at the same time, you know, we're trying to do, we're trying to move agile forward. And so when we were thinking, Max and I were thinking about this execution, we came at it from a lens of how do you give away more than you're asking for? And that's something we learned from Maggie at Red Antler. Um, you know, give, 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 ask is the model. And so when we were designing this, like, would people get on a podcast with uh, Max, Tom, Emmy, like, Yes, but it would be a favor, and we knew, yeah. we knew it would be. And so when we were thinking about how can we flip that on its head and give away more than we were asking for, it had a lot of intentional design where we were, you know, glass truck, yeah. like 
literally on a platform, um, feeling a little celebrity esque. It's like it's, a, it's an objectively cool life experience. Like there's people just keep coming That's up true. here and taking pictures of us. Like yeah. it's so random um, and so authentic. It's New York and it has all these great elements. The other element was like you know trying to get them some marketing, uh, like make it a little bit of a temple marketing moment. Like get their brand up here, post about, uh, give them content to post about. Yeah. And then three, you know, we wanted to give them some sort of creative assets and like uh, UGC or monetizable assets they could share on paid social, organic social. So it really had some like thoughtful design. Um, and I think that's what's contributed to its success. It was a really good experience for us. Um, and uh, I feel lucky that we get to do things like this. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun project. Um, I think outside of the podcast, I think we are thinking about you know what's next as far as investments concerned maybe additional venture capital rounds in the future additionally is this just a truck side advertising business or is this data driven out of home like how what yeah. what formats are are we going to focus on um and i think there's a couple exciting updates on the horizon we sold six million our first year and did 80 million dollars in sales last year that's what the COO of Adventure Challenge, a longtime customer of ShipOps, shared with ShipOp the other day. The pace of growth for Adventure Challenge has been insane, but it wasn't all positive. It started with a failed crowdfunding project. Then investors assured them that their business would fail. They raised zero dollars in outside capital. And it somehow only took a few years to hit $80 million in sales. They started off fulfilling all orders themselves. They'd have U-Hauls packed with thousands of products, making endless trips from their storage unit to the post office. It was not scalable. It was definitely hurting their growth. It definitely wasn't fun. That's when ShipOps started their partnership with Adventure Challenge. By being able to focus on growing the business and product development, sales took off like a rocket ship. While Adventure Challenge initially focused on D2C sales, their popularity started driving other conversations. They started to stock several hundred smaller boutiques across the country, then Francesca's, then Kohl's. And while they're based in California and most of their customers are in the US, the word of mouth and viral videos on TikTok and Instagram started driving demand around the world. So then they started filling orders out of Canada, and then the UK, and now Australia. From a failed Kickstarter and getting $0 in outside investment on day one to over $80 million in revenue, Adventure Challenge has defied the odds and built a global powerhouse brand alongside their partnership with ShipOb, who's there to help you completely unlock your brand's growth. Read the entire story at shipob.com forward slash adventure dash challenge. My final question is, what has been the hardest thing so far? I'll start and let you end. Um, I think the hardest part, one of the hardest parts was taking the jump. Uh, One of the most fearful parts is taking the jump full time. Um, But I think as Tom said, it was something that I was stressing out about for three years. And then when the time came that we actually did it, it wasn't as hard as I was imagining it being because we had de-risked it so much come year three. But from day one that we were talking about this, we were saying, when are we going to quit our jobs? Because we wanted to. It's always, when you're starting a business, it's your dream to do that full time. Um, so I think that there were some you know, sleepless nights of, you know, should I really do this and stuff yeah. like that. But thankfully, when the time came, it, it, it wasn't that difficult. I think that, that the biggest struggle is, is just finding the right people, the right organizational structure. I mean, hiring is so hard. Um, I thought it would be a lot easier. I think that everyone that I talk to in the space now is just uh, reiterating that of, you know, it's every business has a different person that's a right one person that works here, won't work there. And um, it's not as much against the people. It's it's identifying exactly what your business needs um, and and working tirelessly to identify that exact right fit. So I think that there have been a couple times where we've interviewed 20 people and then it's like, all right, I mean, this is the best one, we'll take it. And I think that what I've, I've heard other people who will interview 150 people and keep going until it's the exact right fit. So um, I think that that's something we're still struggling with um, and, and hopefully one day we'll have a, a model and get that down yeah. pat. Fortunately, everyone we've talked to says that is consistently yeah. the, hardest the hardest part of all of their businesses. So at least we're not alone on that island. But yeah, Max, like you said about being uncomfortable taking the risk, but when we went out and fundraised, one of our important lines was, listen, I wouldn't feel comfortable taking your money if we hadn't de-risked right. this business enough to have be pretty confident we have a higher, uh, a better chance than the S&P in terms of yeah. return on your investment. 
And it still could go to zero, but from an expected value equation, we thought we could outperform. Yep. I think the, the hardest part for me, and, and this gets a little bit personal, is um, while we were still doing digital screens, I think, I, I had a lot of personal health issues. Um, so I won't get too into the details, but I actually left my last job while on disability. Um, and I tried many times to get back. And to their credit, they were great about it, trying to find different roles that worked with all of the, their neurological and physical symptoms I was having. And I really just couldn't hack it. And I think what it taught me, or, or the, the, the scary moment for me is, I felt deficient and like I had taken a step back and I had sort of lost, lost, you know, lost my touch a little bit. And then it was being acknowledged by them in that they were trying to find other roles for me within the organization that were less intense and, and I personally felt would stifle my career growth. And so I had this internal feeling of like, I'm not okay. And then was, it was being validated by my employer. It was like, yeah, this guy's not okay. Um, and so I'll be honest, like I still have all, I still battle all of those things. I think what's been really nice or, or what's really driven the business forward is I think I've had a little bit of something to prove if nothing but to myself that like I felt like I'd taken a step back and I took all of that emotion, emotional baggage that was caught up in that and applied it to the business and, and like really put my all into it to get it to, to where it is today. And so um, it's, it's definitely been a ride. I, like I said, I struggle with a lot of those things, but I, at least one part that is nice about it is, is when you, you can sort of design your own life. And I think having the flexibility to not have my working hours be nine to five, like I'll work at like 2 a.m. if I want to. And I do no meeting Wednesdays, which we, yeah. we got to get better about that. Yeah. Back in the meeting Wednesdays. Um, but yeah, so I'd say that's been the biggest challenge. Like I said, I still deal with it today. Um, but I'm grateful to be in a place where it all feels a little bit more manageable. Yeah, I think that I think that it can get um, <clears throat> hard to remember to take care of your health when you know you're this business at this stage. It is your child, and you're putting everything into it. Um, but I think one thing that that we need to remind ourselves of is that you know the business will crumble if your health does as well. So um, need to need to find some sort of balance. Um, and I encourage other entrepreneurs to do that as well. But I think that's a wrap. That's yeah, a wrap. that's awesome. Thank you, Amy. Well, thank you. Thank you, and thank everyone for listening to season one. Season one. Of Driving See Performance. Ya. Season two.